Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. I just got back from Muncie. Uh, a little tired, but on the other hand, uh, I do want to see if I could take another stab at W.C. Hoffman. Uh, it was very, as I say, very interesting, very unusual. Some of you wrote me, said, send me the uh, Makoros and all the rest of it. I'm going to send everybody all the different Makoros, but maybe I'll mention some of them today. I do want to say that uh, today's uh, talk, today's podcast is being sponsored by my good friend uh, Richard Noodleman. Because today is his father's yard site. Uh, Jack Noodleman, that's Yaakov and Moshe Tzvi. Uh, so very appreciative. And I tell you the truth, I'm a little, uh, you know, back from the road. But because today is the yard site, 21 year. So I'd like to do it today um, in honor of the memory of uh, Jack Noodleman. So uh, here we go. <clears throat> we were talking before about Dorsey Hoffman. I had to take a... a, a break of a week or something like that, because I didn't find anybody to sponsor it. But now, uh, I'm going to talk about Hoffman, uh, who's such an unusual person. That's the reason it just... Ordinarily, I don't think about it. I used to be into him many, many years ago. I was totally into Hoffman. And then, like everything else, it's episodic. You drift out of it. You know, you go into other things. My work took me in other directions, all the rest of it. And a lot of what he said is 19th century. It's not really so negated today. Many people don't know that. But still, a lot of it is. And he was a tremendous person, even though he was very modest and uh, wasn't a dramatic type of guy at all. And whenever people talk about his work, I spoke already about his unusual biography. And I spoke last time about his Shalos and Shubas, which are, again, kind of unique and cool. And today, I would talk about his scholarship. Because we don't really have too many Gedolius role, and I would consider him a Gedolius role. The guy knew Shalos Cold. Let me put it this way. The guy knew Dalat Chalki Shulchanar Cold. Let's get that straight. You understand? All the Mogan Avrams, all the Tazas, all the Shachs. That's who we're talking about. The guy knew his stuff. Um, however, in addition to that, there are plenty of people like that. In addition to that, it's not simply they had a PhD because there are many famous rabbis who have PhDs. However, usually, he's the only exception to what I'm about to say. <clears throat> as far as I can think about it, Whenever you have somebody who's a rabbi plus a PhD, his Iker was in A or in B and not in both. I'll just give you an example off the top of my head. Think of Rabbi Shabir Salvechik, OYU. He certainly had a PhD. The guy was a genius, all the rest of it. But he didn't excel in the PhD. Yes, and he wasn't a great philosopher of the 20th century. I'm not saying he couldn't have been. That's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a Magachir. <laughs> Look at his biography. Look at his life. That's what he wished to do. So notice he excelled in the rabbi part. And he had a PhD. He didn't excel in the PhD part. <clears throat> it wasn't, it's not where he put his kochas. You find a lot, of, a lot of other people, it's the opposite. The guy has smicha. He also has a PhD. He became a professor or something like that. And he may have done significant work uh, in his area, let's say history, philosophy, I don't know, something like that. Gun's fine. You can't say the guy's like a gong, you know what I mean? You know, very good. He has a smicha and so forth. 
And that's usually the way it goes, as far as I can think. And that's usually the way it goes. Even somebody like Michael uh, Yaka Weinberg, who had a PhD, I mean, he didn't do outstanding work <clears throat> in the area of... Uh, if It's very interesting, and I'm going to get to him today, or next time, actually. But he's not outstanding as one of the great uh, secular Jewish intellectuals of the 20th century, uh, groundbreaking historian, blah, blah, blah. He was a great gong. He, he, he issued the Charles and Shubas. He also had the secular notch. You see what I'm saying? In other words, each one of these people is an icker by this and a tuffle by that, or vice versa. Hoffman is the only person I can think of off the top of my head who would really be A-plus in the rabbi part and A-plus in the PhD part, which is most unusual, okay? Most unusual, particularly when the PhD part had to do totally with Judaism and with Torah, the history of the Torah. And when I say the history of the Torah, Hoffman is, among other things, he get, he, he juggled a lot of balls. And he's unusual in that regard. He is a history of the, he is a historian. Uh, you know, a historian, and you don't find this often, of the Torah Shibiksav and the Torah Shibapet. I don't really know anybody else like that. Um, and it was a few people, I don't want to say names, that took a stab here, a stab there, or whatever. But not really, you understand? And Hoffman's a guy that put his life into, uh, besides the Rosh Hashiva side, also becoming an authoritative and, and totally knowledgeable historian of the Torah Shibiksav and the Torah Shibapet from a very unusual Dahinua from angle. So he's like really nice now, very exceptional type of individual. And in general, his work, and he wrote a lot. But unfortunately, he lived in Germany at a very interesting time, and I want to talk about this now. Hoffman operated from the 1870s till he died in 1921. So that's identical with what we call Imperial Germany, the Hainu. There used to be a thing called Germany, which wasn't one country. It was a whole bunch of different states that were independent of each other. There was something called the Kingdom of Prussia. There was something totally separate from that called the Kingdom of Bavaria. There was something totally different from that called the Kingdom of Saxony. There was a time there was something called the Kingdom of Hanover. There was something totally different called the Grand Duchy of Baden, which was its own set Medina. Indeed, there were cities which were independent states. Almost reminds you of the Vatican, you know. Frankfurt, before a certain date, was a country by itself. Now, it was connected, you know, with the German Confederation and all that stuff. But La Misa, it was a country by itself. Hamburg was a country with a republic by itself. Uh, in 1870, skipping a lot of details, under the Prime Minister of Prussia, under Bismarck, all these countries came together and formed something called the German Empire, Deutsches Reich. Right? And uh, that meant they have like United States of Germany, but under 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 monarchs. So um, from a, so during the lifetime of Hoffman, meaning when he was active in the 1870s, 1880s, 90s, down to the end of the First World War, he died pretty much after the First World War. It was the Kaiser's Germany, and there were basically two Kaisers, A and B. It was Wilhelm the First and Wilhelm the Second, with a two-minute uh, interval of somebody else. So. Um, this was the time when um, you had what, what we would call what we would call today the Yekis, the formation of that model, 
it was the era of Hirsch and Hildesheimer and uh, people like uh, Bamberger and, and Aaron Troy and so on and so forth. And it has certain Sura. And the best description of this, a brilliant description, is the book by, uh, what's his name? Mordechai Breuer, the, the historian called Modernity Within Tradition. I've spoken at times. If any of you were asking me where to source all the rest of it, read that book before you open your mouth. Read it's, it's in English. I mean, it's originally in German, but it's in English. Modernity Within Tradition is very good. Now, Breuer is a, is a Hersheyan because the grandson of Hirsch, and so he gives, you know, he spins it his way, but everybody, every historian spins it a certain way. I don't think he gives so much attention to Hoffman, but it doesn't matter. <clears throat> you get a Zitz and Laban, which you see what Germany was like at that time. <clears throat> and what it meant was that the Jews in all these different uh, kingdoms think of them as states of the United States. They weren't states, but they kind of like were states. And um, the Jews had civil rights. That's my point. There was a federal constitution, and every kingdom and country had its own little constitution, like in America. And under the federal constitution in Germany, the Jews had complete and total civil rights. That's the point I want to say. The Jews had complete and total civil rights. That was this interesting Nakuda uh, of this time period. So he was operating at a very interesting point. And uh, he was in Berlin because the seminary was in Berlin. Berlin was the capital of the largest state, namely the Kingdom of Prussia. But it was also the capital of the empire, like you see, the federal capital, you see? And all the little kings and all the rest of it were sort of like Machnia under the constitution to the king of Prussia. But I want to say this, Germany at that time was a certain a certain type of democracy, constitutional government, all the rest, but a certain type, you know, not exactly like we understand in America, but nevertheless, and they play funny games with their elections, well, duh, we do that here in the U.S. Um, but uh, you might say it's a bourgeois area when the middle class, you know, like you, what you, the listeners, think of Hersheyanism, that would be the period of this. Okay? Now, at the same time that the Jews had their uh, civil rights, and they did, they never were taken away. At the same time, when the Jews achieved this, it created a big backlash. And during this entire period in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and so forth, there was a powerful movement connected to try to reverse the civil rights and say the Jews aren't worthy of it or they're betraying it or this, that, and the other, and to take it away. Now, it never happened, but you didn't know that. And therefore, there was a lot of um, literary and journalistic and intellectual anti-Semitism. Matter of fact, the word anti-Semitism arose during this period. And therefore, you had a lot of um, famous intellectuals, academicians, professors, and stuff like that, who would always analyze from an intellectual perspective how bad the Jews are, and especially Judaism. Especially Judaism. You understand? Uh, when I say Judaism, the Old Testament and the Talmud, the rabbinical literature, for sure. And this was their way of giving vent to their hatred for the Jews. I repeat, it never reached the point that they actually did anything and the government of Germany never actually 
did take away any of those rights. There's reasons for that, but we're not going to get into that now. But the anti-Semitic atmosphere was very thick. And if you were a Jewish kid going to university in Germany, again, legally you had the right to attend and nobody said boo. But you heard from the professors, you heard from other students, all this stuff about how bad Judaism is and how bad the Gemara is and how, you know, this thing isn't real and, you know, they, the Jews believe in bad values and really they do do blood libel and really they do do this stuff and that stuff. This is a very interesting era, okay? And the great German um, Orientalists, as they call them at that time, who wrote about the Bible, about the Middle East, all the rest, always wrote in a very anti-Jewish way. Very anti-Jewish way. Even the great Mumsen, who, Theodore Mumsen, who wrote this big multi-volume thing of the Roman Empire, the history of the Roman Empire, and who had an assistant who was a from Jew, you should see when he gets to the Jews, oh my God, you know, from the time of Achorim Bayashani, oh my Lord, he's all how bad the Jews are, and they caused the Romans so much trouble, and they're this, and that, and the other. This was the Avira, you understand? Now, what do you do in such a case? One way is simply like this. I'm just going to ignore it, like in America. I'm going to buckle down, not pay attention to it, live within my dollar almost. And many did that. But, at the end of the day, people say this, people tie to that. Do, do the, does Judaism have no response? You get it? Are the Jews also dumb that they can't respond to this stuff? And the answer is, yeah, they were that dumb and they couldn't respond to this stuff. <laughs> get over it. With the exception of Hoffman, W.C. Hoffman. That's my point. He was like the King David versus the Goliath. You understand? Nobody knew how to give uh, answers, responses to all these tinas, except him. And therefore, the Yekis all relied on him to write articles in the newspaper refuting what this anti-Semite said, or to correct the misapprehension that some professor said about the ancient Near East, or something in the Middle Ages. So this guy had to waste his time. I think I saw once he had over 650 newspaper letters, he had articles and this kind of stuff he had to publish in the press to prove how stupid, not, that's the wrong word, to simply um, respond to and point out how incorrect the arguments that were made against Judaism and Jews were. And it's quite remarkable. Now he's all in German. As far as I know, nobody ever collected them. As they said before, he wasted his time. By the way, he also, every time you had some reformed conservative rabbi or something like this, would try to write something to show also how bad something is in the Talmud or whatever, he had to, he had to write a, an article to respond to that. Now, usually, he wrote these articles. If it was a Gaim, he would write it in, in, in the German press. If it was against fellow Jews, he wrote it in his own newspaper because he lived in, Frank, uh, in Berlin, and the, Berlin had its own separate Orthodox community. And they had their own newspaper. I think it was called the Jewish Press. I'm serious, like Yiddish Press. And they would have sometimes what they call a, a scholarly supplement, you know, intellectual supplement, and, you know, a couple of pages. And he would write his stuff in there. So it's hard to collect all these things, although I'm sure now we live in a time where it's online. So I'm serious now. It's all online somewhere. Now, uh, therefore, his intellectual endeavors had to do with Bible and Bible criticism, with the history of the Mishnah, and with the history of what we call the Medish Halacha, which is contemporary with the Mishnah. So Hoffman can be understood as a historian of Tanaitic literature. Uh, that's not all he did. 
But this is what his specialty was. This was what claimed his main attention. Historian of Tanaga Glacier. You see, what do you mean by Tanaga Glacier? <laughs> That's stupid. Uh, there's, there's a Mishnah, there's a Tosefta. This one, Tatanayim. And as a man of Shalach Mechulta Sefer and Sifri, there may be different versions of that. Well, how am I supposed to know different versions? Do the work. <laughs> Get it? Go to the museums. I mean, the uh, the archives and the, uh, you know, the libraries where they have the ancient manuscripts and do your work. If you don't do that, then shut up. You see? And maybe there's two Mechultas, maybe there's five Mechultas, maybe there's four types of Taurus condom out there. Who knows? Uh, there was another one called Medish as we shall see. Turns out maybe in Yemen they have another halachic Medish that we don't know about. Is it reliable? Is it not reliable? They go into all these sorts of things. So basically, he's a specialist where he was interested in that. He would, if he would have lived 120 years, then he would write on other things. But since he only lived as long as he lived, he spent his time mostly, I would say, on the Bible and the Tanoim. That's how I would touch up Hoffman in terms of his um, scholarly work. Bible Hoffman. Now, I told you before, he went to university in the 1860s and 70s. One second. Right, somebody just uh, pushing it for about a restaurant. Um, what was I saying? The One second. I remember. I remember. So Hoffman went to university uh Universities in uh, Germany, Vienna also, uh, in eighteen late eighteen sixties or eighteen seventies. This was when um, a brand new <clears throat> way of studying the Bible was very popular among the Protestants. Uh, not so much the Catholics. And he went to Protestant universities. This was called Bible criticism. Now, most people listening to this podcast, if you're a Shiva type person. They're not familiar with the fact that the word criticism doesn't simply mean I'm putting you down. Go take the trouble to Google criticism and the definition, and you'll see that criticism can mean, yes, I'm putting you down, the expression of disapproval of someone or whatever. Yes, that's true. But the word criticism also means, in English, another definition, which is the analysis and judgment of the merits and faults of a literary or artistic work or the scholarly investigation of literary or historical texts to determine their origin or intended form. Ah, ding! The third one. That's called criticism. So when you hear somebody's a Bible critic or Bible criticism, it doesn't mean they're criticizing the Bible. It means they're trying to undertake a scholarly, meaning a scientific investigation of literary or historical texts, in this case, would be the Bible, to determine their origin or intended form. The way you tell the difference in English is, if you say criticize, then um, you're talking about putting somebody down. If you say you critique somebody, then you're not talking about putting somebody down, but you're trying to touch up what exactly are the um, origins of this, or the analysis and judgment of the merits and faults of a work, what they call literary criticism. So I know a lot of people in the word Bible critic, but criticism, they don't know what it means. Okay? Now... In the context of trying to find the origin of the Bible, and I'm talking most interestingly about the uh, Old Testament, that was what we call the Tanakh. So these guys were very anti-Semitic, but in a theological way. That's who the German Protestants have always been, or at least were until Hitler's time. Today it's a little more complicated because they have like a bad conscience. <laughs> having 
you know, had like uh, prepared possibly the environment for the Holocaust. That's a whole schmooze by itself. But I, until Hitler, for sure, all the big uh, brains in the German universities who were into ancient biblical stuff or Middle Eastern studies or archaeological or Semitics, as they call it, they're all trying to knock the Turnaby McSuvin part because even though they say they're coming from a strictly objective point of view, after all, it's supposed to be the scholarly investigation of literary texts to determine the origin. But really, they were coming as Christians, and they want to find the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. That's what it boils down to. Because the whole usage of Christianity is that the Old Testament required tikkun. And then Jesus and all these guys came along and were masakin' it with the New Testament. The Jews obviously disagree with that. I'm just trying to tell you that this was the particular Vodazara of the 19th century, particularly in Germany. And if you were a Jewish boy going to school there, because girls usually didn't go to university, uh, this is what you heard from everybody around you. And usually the Jewish kids absorb it because, you know, if you've ever been in college, and especially an elite college, and um, you have a professor who knows what he's talking about, you hear this stuff and all the students talk about it, and becomes just part of uh, what's what the politically correct or intellectually correct way of discussing it, you go along with it, you understand? And if a Jewish boy would stand up and say, it's not true, the Old Testament better than the New Testament, they would, they, would, they would just slug him up. And he wouldn't really have the information or the knowledge to fight back, you see? So it was a really tough time. Now, the from world in general, well, it depends where you are. If you live in an isolated bubble, like the yeshivas, for example, in uh, Poland or Hungary, a place like that, the definition of yeshiva is, is tries to be isolated bubble, tries to, uh, just concentrate on gemara, 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 and therefore you're not worried about what the guy talk about. So then you're not nervous the whole thing, and you know it doesn't affect you. But on the other hand, if you do have an education and stuff, or you read about it in the paper or whatever, the guy has questions, and you know he, who's he going to go to the chasam sofer? You know what I mean? You can't go to your Russian Shibi or Rebbe. They don't know this stuff. You get what I'm saying? So what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Especially when it has what you call the scholarly voice, which means that the Gansavel says that it's true. All the scientists, the professors, the uh, newspaper editors, the thinkers said that obviously this is all true. This is the real history of the Bible, or at least the most advanced and best take we can get on it, because nobody was there when the Tanakh was put together. So then this becomes a truth of its own. That's what I mean when I said before, it's like the Abodazar of the late 19th century. Um, this particular type. This was the world in which Hoffman grew up. I mean, literally grew up. This is, let me put it this way. You have to understand, the guy took a whole lot of college courses, as we say today, university courses. This is what he was taught. Now, he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut in school and get the doctorate. <laughs> I mean, and all this, you know, just, just get your degree. I get that. That's not what he held. Now, at the same time, at the same time, he was a great Talmud Chacham. A great Talmud Chacham. So here you are in 1873, when the guy was 30 years old, after teaching a year or two, whatever, in Hershey's high school. And now he gets an offer, which he took, to teach in the Hildesheimer Seminary. So these are guys who were post-high school, because uh, that was you're talking about the gymnasium era, 
and uh, they're going even, you know, to uh, on the road to a PhD. So uh, you had all kinds of students over there. Many were German, many were from Eastern Europe. The, one, the ones from Germany had very little Torah knowledge, but they had a very good secular education. The ones who came from Eastern Europe was the opposite. They had learned in Cheders, Yeshivas, they had good Torah knowledge. They had many secular education. So it's like a Tzimishazach. And Hoffman taught the younger class, and Hildesheimer told the older class. That's how it worked. Now, what did, what courses did Hildesheimer assign to him? So the answer is, first of all, uh, Gemara, and, you know, no, it's give a regular shear. Uh, Hildesheimer gave the older shear, he gave the younger shear. So just figure like that. Here's a guy who gave a shear in Gemara every uh, day, except when you give the Bechinas. And also in Halacha, no, it was in Shulchan Aruch. <clears throat> so that's who Hoffman was. Uh, I'm talking about in the seminary, in the school. But he also taught Bible. No, his whole time said like this, I know you, and I want you to teach Tanakh, and I, especially Chumash. Now, what do you mean he wanted to teach Chumash? He doesn't need Hoffman to teach Chumash Rashi in Ramban. What he meant was, go explain why all the Goyim are wrong. And so he had a guy 30 in the peak of his health and he gave classes every day, whatever, how many times a week. And his intention was to take on the Bible critics. Okay. Again, I repeat the Bible criticism, the scholarly investigation of literary texts to determine their origin or intended form. The Bible critics basically say it's not true that Moshe wrote the Torah at the dictation of Hashem. But rather, there's a whole bunch of different books written by different times, different people, and it was splashed and splashed together in the form that we have it, Breshish Moth by people, certain people at certain times. So there was a time when it didn't exist, and there's a time when this part and this part existed. Another guy wrote here, wrote it here, and then some editor, you know, put a challenge out of the whole thing, and the challenge mixed, took part of A and mixed it with B, took part of B and mixed it with A, took C, mixed it with D. There's a whole different way of, of, of reading it. Obviously, they are coming from the point of view that there's no God involved over here. From a scientific perspective, they said, even though they were Christians, they believe in God, but from a scientific perspective, you can't assume that A, there is a God, and B, that God did anything as far as the Torah is concerned. You have to read the Bible the way you read any other document. If I read any document, I give it to a detective. How old does it sound? When did they start using this language? Who wrote this? You know, what kind of Lashonas do you have over here? Uh, what kind of anachronisms can you discover? It's a whole different... It's, it's like giving the detective to find out where something comes from. So Hoffman really undertook a big job. At that time, the most famous Bible professor who had put this together in a particular form was Julius Wellhausen. Uh, he was like the god of German Protestant Bible criticism. Uh, and there's a guy, Graf, Professor Graf, who also did it. He used to call it the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis, and has all kind of business to do how the Chumash was put together. Now, again, they'll have to admit, we don't know. We're analyzing. And, of course, we're analyzing from a objective point of view. Now, they're as objective as I am. That's a lie, but that's what they claimed. You understand? And being Protestants, uh, they don't like Vayikra. Let's put it that way. Uh, why do they say the New Testament better than the Old Testament? Oh, the New Testament is all about Vahavta Recha Kamocha. The Old Testament has all these rules and regulations. You know, the Goyim, get it? The Goyim don't like Halacha. It bothers them. 
that there's so many rules and regulations. What we Jews take pride in, we have a different attitude. We say, By them, God must have hated the Jews to give them so many rules and regulations. You get it? Because that's the Christian way, the Protestant way. They don't have ritual rules and all. There are very little, hardly any. It's all just a matter of belief. That's the essence of Protestantism. Now, I don't expect most of you know that. You're not Christians, but I just told you enough that you need to know. Now, uh, so today I'm giving a 20-minute a, a, a Apicursus uh, lecture. Anyway, that's where they're coming from. So therefore, they hate Vayikra. They hate this. Why does God have, It bothers them as Christians, as Protestants. The followers of Martin Luther and Calvin bothers them. Why should God have to care about Tumah, Tahira, Karbonus, Kachim, and Kachim, Kibodam, Klishas, Batsafan, Badaram, you know, and the Yesod, and all the rest of it, which are in the Chumash. It's not only in the Mishnah, it's not only in the Gemara, it is in the Chumash. You understand? Uh, you know, Albohan Yadam Bayamonis, Albohan Ragam Bayamonis, the coin goes and clears out the house of the Mitzvah. This is like poison to them, get it? So, they evolved the whole Zah. Uh, I'm obviously dumbing this all down because you have to. They evolved a whole uh, uh, way of, of understanding the history of how the Bible was formed. The, the main parts of which, is, I mean, it's hard to explain, you know. Uh, but basically, first of all, they'll say every time it says Yod Kevavke, so that's one author. Every time it says Elokim, is another author. So and they submit all together, you know, like that. But the key point was that. Um, Different parts of the Chumash were written earlier, and other parts are written later. And they're all out of order, but whoever put it together, the way we have it today was trying to fool you. You get it? So, uh, the key point is like, Dvarim and Vayikra come very late. By them, Dvarim would be... Um, the reason I'm telling you this is because of Hoffman. I say that Dvarim would be would, would be written and composed at the time of Yoshio, for certain reasons, by their Cheshvan. And Vayikra, listen to this, Vayikra was written and composed and by Shani time, time Ezra Nehemiah. You see? And therefore it represents what they call the priestly class trying to impose, like I say, all these anal rules and regulations on the people because you look at Ezra Nehemiah and they're trying to make an amona and make people swear that they're going to keep the laws. And and, and now they stooped it back in and they said this is part of the Chumash. Now, it doesn't matter whether you think this is silly or not. People took this seriously in the 1800s. So it comes along Hoffman and and he um, studied this with his students year by year. Uh, now he not only knew Shas and Poskim, but because of his interest in what we're talking about, he made it his business to become a bucky in all the upper courses. So he knew Wellhouse and stuff inside out. I mean all the all the uh, scholarly articles, not only the books these guys read, and Ewald and Kunin. And all the famous names that nobody remembers anymore, but were popular back in the day. They were big in Chosho at that time. And they were, you know, smart people. But they were coming from a very anti-Semitic point of view, even though they would never admit it. They would say, we're just calling it like it is. Now, they didn't criticize Christianity the same way, but so what? Okay? And he, um, therefore, was uh, used his classes in the 1870s to be something like a seminar in which, I don't know if he did like a seminar, but he, no, he prepared, he's one of these people that prepared this year by notes. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? 
There's all kind of market shares out there, and some just do it on the fly, and some prepare by notes. I had Rabbi Kolesky. He always prepared everything with notes. He was always redoing the notes. That's who Hoffman was. Now, um, so whenever he came into into Vayikra and the other stuff, he's always very Mayan in the in in the Pesukim. Uh, he is using to survey before he comes in the class. Obviously, all the Mikra Skidolas and the Rishonim Achronim, including from his time. In other words, he knows Xavah Kabbalah, let's say, and the Mendelssohn Bible is a very important part. Rabbi Cohen is always shepherding me about that. You know, because uh, Moses Mendelssohn put together a Chumash, uh, which ain't so bad. It's not, it's not what you think. The, re- the complaints against it were not because of the Pirish. The complaints were for another reason. The Pirish itself pretty logical. One of the Icarus not totally hurts Wesley. And, you know, believe it, I know it sounds funny what I'm saying, but Big Rob Bonham in the 19th century thought he had good stuff. Uh, including Hoffman, and um, but also, like I said before, uh, you know the Hirsch's, uh, you know the Hirsch stuff, which was being published at that time, and uh, he, he is comprehensive. And the guy knew everything. What can I tell you? All right, and he's bringing it to bear to analyze logically Vayikra um, and Dvarim and all the other parts to see is it possible to undo. I hate to say the word to slug up because you can't exactly, but can you can you undo through logical arguments, not through you know don't do to don't do what they're doing, which is just you know hide your um, prejudices behind the the screen of scholarly uh, discourse, but have real proofs to the degree that anyone can do that against what they're saying. This is what the guy put a lot of time and effort into. This makes Hoffman unique. There's nobody else that I know like that. And he studied the Chumash for decades. All uh, In the 1870s, it was the Vayikra. Uh, he used to publish this stuff in the like in the Jewish press. I don't know who could understand any of that. But, you know, because he had to say like this, Professor so-and-so said this, but here's why I think he's wrong. But you might come back to me with this. But here, and there, here's another theme from Wellhausen. But I'm going to compare it to what it says in the Sifra, and I'm going to tell you why I think the Sifra is right and it was wrong, and so on and so forth. Most unusual. The guy worked in it for decades. He didn't publish his stuff till the first decade of the 20th century. So in 1905 and 1906, which is 30, over 30 years after he started teaching this, and after thinking about it, you know, a long, a long time, he published his book on Vayikra, and most interestingly, his book called The Strongest Arguments Against Wellhausen, uh, the most wichtig instance in gegen the Wellhausen Hypothesis, on German. Very technical, very technical, in which he wants to say that I can show that a lot of what uh, what, what um, the Wellhausen Hypothesis, which was the most hush of, is uh, flawed. Okay, flawed. And uh, a lot of it is in the book of Vayikra also, but the main is in this book called The Strongest Arguments Against Wellhausen. Uh, I could kick myself. I thought that last week or two weeks ago I was going to do this quicker. It didn't work out that way. And I had my rusty, trusty book here. It's in German, you know, uh, Hoffman's book, The Strongest Arguments Against the Wellhausen Hypothesis. Uh, but it was translated into Hebrew by a Talmud of his in the 1920s called Rayos Machrios Negev Wellhausen. 
I don't know if it's online or not. I'm telling you, I have a copy. I bought it years ago, and I'm I'm, I'm just angry. I put it somewhere. I can't find it. It's not like Mrs. Marcos. I put it in one of my shoes. You know, I don't know where it is. But if you're really interested in it, it's in it. There's a a lady. I don't know Professor uh, Solzbach or some up in Canada, McGill. Does it, it, does she translate in English? So if you do your homework, those of you who keep bugging me about the sources, if you look for uh, uh, Professor Sulzbach, S-U-L-Z, she did a thesis long ago on um, Hoffman's uh, book, and she translates it into English. So if you've got the patience, and believe me, it's very technical, if you've got the patience to plow through this stuff, and this is what turns you on, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying that for seriously, if it turns you on, you, you can now see it online. Okay, it's quite remarkable. I mean, she did it long ago. I don't think most people are aware of it. Uh, and he takes on, in a very interesting way, the whole biblical critical um, approach of these particular Protestant German university professors, the prevailing hypotheses that were around in his time. Uh, now, I'm just, always, when I'm doing it, I, mean, I don't know how technical to get on these podcasts. Because you lose a lot of people when you get down into it. And so what I did was I was trying to think about it. And the uh, easiest Thompson's of it I found is in this uh, book from Professor, uh, what's his name? Asaf, did you? Yeah. A recent book called Bikorism of Ukarit, Alternativa Orthodoxy of Lameda Yadub, 1873-56. So a couple years ago from Bialik. And it's a, I don't know the guy. He's a professor in Israel, obviously. And he's writing about Orthodox historians, counter-historians, in the Tkufa that I'm talking about with you today. And so he mentions the Hoffman stuff. Although, to be perfectly honest, I see he, he stole a lot of it from a famous article from Waxman in the Chachmi Yisrael B'mayr but what? who cares? From my point, my point of view, I want to give an example of how uh, Hoffman operates. It's an Ivrit, but it's a simple Ivrit, so you'll follow with me. And in my mind, this is the most... Uh, concentrate, easy way of explaining it. Okay? And he says, it's pretty short. I'm not going to take a long time with this. But say for as case Hoffman, Besnagdus Negashitas Wellhausen. He goes after Wellhausen. Klummer, Hatainakim, Akor P, Hamachunus Sebuchukilhim. I told you again, they divide the Bible into J, into P, and the D, and so forth. This one was written by this guy, this guy. And eventually somebody came together and submitted it all together in the form we have it today. And you and I are so dumb that we fell for it. That's the Wellhausen hypothesis. So he takes on this one, Hoffman, and especially Tainakim, Akor P, Hakolos, Kol Sefer Vayikra, Umisper Gurl Shalprokim Sukhmi Breshish, Mosbam Bidbar. Notice, anywhere you find in the Chumash, what you and I would call Kachim and Tyrus, um, for example, um, there are stuff about Karbonus. Think of Parshas Pinchas and all the Karbonus there. Uh, so he would say, oh, that's really from the P, and it was originally part of uh, Vayikra, but they uh, stuffed it into Bamidba or something like that, that kind of approach. So Hoffman takes on this whole thing, and they tie the Goyim tie his Chaber Lachar Golis Bubble, which is 444, the Kiruv. And I told you before that the main point of this thesis, hypothesis, is that what you and I call Vayikra was written around the time of Ezra and Chemia, which would put us um, according to regular historiography, I'm not going to say to Rome, around the year 450 BCE, what we call Ezra Nehemiah. And 
Hoffman said like this, I can demonstrate that this is not Mistaber. Latinus Hoffman, EFSHER LAKABLOS ATINA, GISEFER CHUKI HIS PARSEM BEIS ASIFA VACHASIMO AL BRITA MANAMA TUKARIM PERCHES YUD SHAL SEFER NECHEMIA. He says this whole thing is based on the idea that they added these whole parts of the Chumash. I mean, it's quite a interesting argument that people believed it, you know, that the Hovayikra and these other parts come from the time of Ezra Nehemiah. Especially if you know the book of Nehemiah. Do you know the book of Nehemiah? <laughs> um, after he, Nehemiah, the hero, succeeds in building the wall of Jerusalem against the great odds, he undertakes that what they call the Bris Amono, which the people promised to keep all their mitzvahs, and they mentioned specific mitzvahs over there. So, well, hasn't once the time that's when they adopted the Vayikra or that kind of thing. So, he's going to show you that it doesn't work. Okay? Because if you look in the Chemi, it only talks in general terms. Don't mention the specific stuff. All you have is we promise. Do you know, if you're interested in what I'm saying today, then you'll take a look at the book of Nehemiah, especially chapters 8 and 9, and it's a very interesting point. I always call it Mayflower Compact, where all the Jews under Nehemiah's guidance say, we promise to keep the whole Torah and keep the, 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 the maintain the base and make sure all the rest of it. But in very general terms, they don't get into all the nitty-gritty. And it's not misstabbered that a whole book of Vayikra would come at that time, because that book of Vayikra is nothing but a whole bunch of details, which doesn't fit it. Hoffman may be Kamarayas Kenegizos, Right? And he proves all kind of ways. For example, uh, this, I'm just sharing with you like a few Nikudos because these parts I think any reader, any listener can understand. And will get a piece of an idea of how he operates. Often say like this. Look at the Mishnah. The Mishnah describes the Avodah's base of Yom Kippur. It's pretty clear even to a German that this description of Avodah Yom Kippur from Yuma would represent the, the way it actually happened in the late Second Temple period. Even Gaim would admit that. It's not something made up totally. That's what Hoffman says. Uh, the Gemara says that, you know, the, the Yuma and the Tomid come from late descriptions of the Third Temple, you know, from the Herod Temple. Uh, so we all know, everybody knows, that there was no Aaron then. You've all learned Yuma, and we've all seen the picture of Mishnayis. And instead of the arm being there, was there was the stone on which the arm used to sit. And the coin goes, achas v'achas, achas and all that business, towards where the arm would have been. I think you know what I'm talking about. Now, instead, they did all this stuff on the stone, the Yavon Shesia. However, Aaron Bris, Tophis, Machem, Chashem, If you go on Vikra, there's a lot of discussion about the centrality of the Aron itself. In Achrimos and all these other places. So it doesn't make sense. You see, this is what I mean when he says the strongest arguments against the hypothesis. You can't disprove anything, just like they can't prove anything. These people are offering arguments. When I see arguments, again, it's like criticism. I don't mean arguments like a Shiva guy's arguing somebody. Intellectual arguments. He's saying, I'm going to demonstrate the weakness of your arguments. And it can't be that at the time of Ezra Nehemiah, somebody's writing a whole book and making a whole big deal about the armed bris when everybody knew there was no armed bris anymore and the whole avodah w- 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 was done in a different way. Because 
Yagish Kolkach Kli Shekvarinu Kaim Bosezman. It doesn't make sense. It's not Mestaber, that's the point, right? That the book of Ayikwa, which you claim is brand new and rewriting now, is going to talk to a great deal about the necessity of having an arn when everybody knows there wasn't any arn anymore. Another example, the Urbatumim, which is mentioned in Vayikra. How we're coming back from All you find in the Urbatumim is in Vayikra. Why would somebody writing in time Ezra Nehemia talk about use of Mishpada Urim and the Urbatumim when everybody knew, again, even a guy will admit this, everybody knew that the Urbatumim, going by the Bible, had only been used in the time of David and Shlomo, uh, David and, um, what's his name, and Shaul. And and there wasn't any Urbatumim by the time you get to Ezra Nehemiah, which is stated in the book of Ezra Nehemiah. I know he's talking about where it says that uh, Ezra tried to round up Bolivium or something like that, and he couldn't find uh, you know the right types or whatever. You look at yourself, and he, and and you know, and they couldn't ask the Mishpah to Urim because it wasn't Urbatum anymore. Why would somebody Lo Hegioni? It's not logical. That somebody like you, the Protestants are claiming, who live in the time of Ezra Nehemiah after Babel, Yitzhak Lorim Batumim, why would he write a book in which you're talking about Lorim Batumim and, and how it's part of the ritual? That there wasn't any Lorim Batumim anymore. So you're telling me, you Wellhausen, that even the parts in Shmos, where it talks about, where it's in Parshish Tetzav, is it or something? Truman where he talks about, you know, Odom Pitatobarekas, Ator Echad. None of that stuff was still around later on. So why would they be talking about that? Now, again, you could possibly counter-argue against this, but it's not logical. So you see how he called the title? The strongest arguments against the Gaisha hypothesis, the Wellhaus hypothesis. He didn't say, I'm schlucking it up. And Hoffman himself has an introduction where he's saying, listen, I'm offering the, 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 the best arguments. Me, myself, and I, this is what he writes. He says, I'm a from Jew. I believe in in Moshe. You know, I believe in the old Jewish way. I'm confident with that. But Lishitoscha, right? Now Lilo fairly, but Lishitoscha, your theory and your thesis uh, is Ishvach. So they're the strongest arguments. Now mind you, if you undo as he tries to do, the argument, the vehicles of a late date, then the whole rest of the hypothesis falls apart. See he was very clever in this regard. It's not you go and knock somebody down. I do a jujitsu trick. I I trip you by the feet, and the whole th- whole thing comes co- and the whole big giant comes coming down. That's what he did. You understand? Know he said the same thing in Dvarim. Uh, a lot of those things in Dvarim, and this is his general style. Now this is most unusual, um, because a big rabbi didn't deal with this stuff. Uh, Hoffman wrote this in 1906. That's the time of Chaim Brisker. I don't know, you know, all those type of people. And uh, they didn't even know what's going on. Let's put it this way. They heard a Bible criticism. They certainly did. You hear what I said? All the rest, she was new to this kind of stuff. But they had no yacht in this kind of thing. And their I, their policy was, I'm not going to waste any time with it. The reason I'm not going to waste any time with it, right or wrong, is, at least as I understand it, is, listen, every few years comes another about Zara. Uh, I'm not going to spend all the time on this. If we just ignore it for 20, 30, 50 years, it'll go away and be replaced by a different Abedazora. So you won't have to waste our time dealing with German Bible criticism in the 19th century. Now, to be perfectly honest, 
Bible criticism in the sense of under, analyzing the historical origins of the text is, is alive and well today. <laughs> you know, don't fool yourself. And nobody except for from Jews and uh, maybe some from Christians disbelieves in Bible criticism. And that's the accepting world. But Hoffman was living in his time, and he took on, as I said before, uh, in these two, in 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 this very um, technical way. If you read the, the, if you go online and do what I said, which is you get this uh, lady, this professor's uh, translation of it. If if you're really into this, uh, then you'll love it. It's very tedious because you have to be, you have to go after pusik after pusik. And the each din in, in Deuteronomy and in, in Dvarim, and each din in uh, Vayikra, and then compare it against the larger context and see what the guy tied in. And he has extensive uh, footnotes in which he shows he knows everything. And uh, and I think I mean most people can I shouldn't say most people, but let's put it this way: the biggest oof to of all this was the following: most Yekas didn't read this because it's too it's beyond them. The very fact that somebody like this can write something that we have a response to them, that gave by a tremendous physic. Do you get what I'm saying? Hoffman was doing this mainly for psychological reasons, in my opinion, and that is to be mechazic to German Jews. And when I say the German Jews, the young kids going to college, the young kids from from families who say, listen, I'm learning this and the other. I can't just be my parents say, you know, we do this because my father did and my grandfather did. It, that doesn't work anymore. I may not understand all this, but I want to know somebody has a counter Tina. So when Hoffman came out with this, the young Orthodox Jewish kids who were at all intellectual, at all intelligent, they like felt a, a, a tremendous like a tremendous shot in the arm. That's why he did it. That's why he did it. Now, somebody can say, why you waste your time all that? It's stupid to say you waste your time. If this is no gay to people, it's not a waste of time. Right? It's also true I think he did it to make a Kiddush Hashem to show, you know, you guys don't run the roost. A lot of what you say is basically not logical. They're stupid. You understand? Um, but I must say that when this book came out, it should have been very controversial. And I wouldn't necessarily say a bestseller, but in the academic sense, it should have been something that provoked a lot of hot reviews back and forth and critiques, and he should have countered the critiques, because that's what happens when you publish something hot in the academic world. It becomes a whole subject of controversy, and they have conferences on it, and people, and there's a new idea, and this is the Jewish view as opposed to the other view. Nothing like that happened. The guy completely ignored it. Notice, they did what the yeshivas do to them. The Christian, German, Protestant professors and others in Germany simply weren't covered uh, I remember his son-in-law said there was one guy, uh, I forget who, it was like a, a like a, 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 a some kind of Jerry Falwell type in Germany who wrote a review on it. Um, I don't remember exactly what he said. But that's it. Basically, they're not gorgeous. You know why? A, he's Jewish. B, he says in the opening lines, I believe in Taurus Moshe. Well, then the, as this, Midvemse against the Tish. No, then he's not a civilized person. How can a person say, I believe in Taurus Moshe? Meaning that there was a guy named Moshe and God dictated all the words to him. The very fact you say that shows you're not a serious person. That's the environment in which he operated. And so they weren't Doris's arguments. And I don't think, as far as I'm aware, 
I mean, I could be wrong. I don't think hardly any people have ever read this book. I mean, some did. That's an exaggeration. You know, some did. But first of all, it would be Bible students, which ain't too many of those. And secondly, it would be a Bible student who's interested in the firm approach. You get it? Now, there are some. There certainly are. And I've seen people who critique Hoffman's, uh, you know, uh, lines. And I, and I understand that. You know, there, there are certain things you can think of or whatever. But overall, he certainly made a powerful argument because this kind of business of the anachronism and the non mistabert nature of what you find in places like Vayikra and Nishmos and all the rest of it, it doesn't sound like it's coming from a later date. Now, you can always say, well, the guy, whoever put the Bible together was like a Tolkien, you know what I mean? Trying to create a, a, a fantasy universe. It's not mistaber, right? And that's all you can do in this kind of thing. You can go from the point of view of what's mistaber and what's not mistaber. This is the essence who Hoffman was. Now, he doing this, he was ma'ayan, as he had to be, in every single word. First of all, in whole Chumash, obviously. I mean, when I say Chumash, I don't mean like a, a, a Talmud Chacham learns Chumash. He knew that too. I mean, you look every Pusik with a microscope, you know, or maybe I should say a magnifying glass, to examine in light of all the different sorts of things. Do you get what I'm saying? When he read a Pusik and Chumash, he knew what every guy said on the subject. He also knew what every rabbi ever said on the subject. But he knew what every guy ever said on the subject. And he's always calculating how to put it over in such a way to show that Armasur is correct. But not in a simple way of saying, we're right, I don't care what you say. It has to be in, in, in a form of an intellectual argument in which even you have to be moda to the raya that I just gave, as they would say in yeshivas. Now, I'll say it again. Most people, first of all, he wrote this in German, so nobody could read, if you can't read German, not in Ugea. Second of all, even was translated 20 years later, uh, it's very technical. And by then, there were other uh, uh, schools of Bible criticism, and may I say archaeology and things like that, which uh, weren't like Wellhausen. So Hoffman stuff is connected to a particular school of Bible criticism, but the one against all of them, uh, and he can't slug the whole thing up, he can only show you the weaknesses, the strongest arguments, the weaknesses in the hypothesis, although I told you before, in a very ingenious way, if you accept that the whole theory about Leviticus and Deuteronomy is wrong, then the whole the whole theory falls apart. But that doesn't mean that nobody else can come up with another theory. It's not like after Hoffman wrote his book, everybody said, okay, now I believe in Taurus Moshe. That didn't happen. But it's just fascinating that he would put so much time and effort into all this. And meanwhile, he was he became a super bucky in Vayikra, and he published Vayikra the year before he his commentary on Vayikra in German, uh, with a lot of the same stuff in there. Right? So if anybody who, like uh, Rabbi Khan was telling, anybody who, who is Ma'ayan in the Vayikra uh, will see many references to this Gaisha Bible criticism stuff and why he will say that we can slug him up or not, or to be more accurate, why we can demonstrate that our opinion is right. Now, what he could bring to this that nobody in the world could bring to this was this knowledge of Shas, of Torah When he comes, as a matter of fact, this stimulated him to become a super expert. I mean, to memorize totally all the Tanaitic literature, especially the Midrashi Halacha, because they have to do, as I talked about last week with the Carbon Aron, they have to do with the nitty-gritty, and I think you know this, of all the um, ways of understanding uh, 
the contents in Vayikra Bamidbar Dvarim. Right? Shmos Vayikra Bamidbar Dvarim. The Mechilta Sifra and Sifri. And uh, no guy had any idea of this. You understand? To them, they immediately said, anything written by the rabbis is baloney. And Hoffman can say, yes, really? Well, look at this. Even you say that this passage is hard to understand, and so forth. You come up with some crazy. This is what it says in our literature. Here's it in Tosefta. Actually, be honest. Isn't what the rabbis have here more mistabra as a pushup shot of this puzzle than what you're saying? That's a very typical Hoffman kind of approach. Now, he doesn't cuss anybody out, but he is pretty firm you know, in his uh, style. And the end is the end of something interesting. Since we're now uh, a week or two before Shavuos, so one of the things that Hoffman was interested in, first he wrote as an article, then he incorpor- it's in the it's incorporated into Vayikra, is the whole thing about the Omer, because he has a whole business, I don't even remember anymore, the Omer Schwingung, <laughs> everything's in German, the swinging of the Omer, which means the carbon Omer. It really, really means is the Tzedukim and the Baisusim Mimachras uh, Hashabbos. You know, when when is, when is uh, Shavuos? It's Mimachras Hashabbos. And, um, and he brings all the arguments, again, in a very nice Mistaber way to show that we're right and the Tzedukim and the Baisusim and all this are wrong. If you're interested in this, you can get the Vayikra and look inside. If you want in the shorter form, I'm just going by memory. I think if I remember correctly, what's his name uh, talks about it? Um, Hugger, you know, uh, Nachshoni. Over there, probably when Parshem or something like that. He talks about it. And Hoffman has a very a very nice vart um, in, in, in connection with this. And he said, he's got a whole, to argue why the word Machras HaShabbos means the way we say it. I mean, of course, what's he going to say? Um... He has a very nice uh, point, which was as follows. <clears throat> if you hold, like the Tzedukim, let's say, for example, the Karites Kar- or whatever, so, Mimachas HaShabbos, I'm assuming everybody listening to this podcast knows what I'm talking about. How do you count the 50 days? So we say, you always count from the second day of Pesach. I think you know that. They used to say, no, Mimachas HaShabbos means the first Sunday, day after Saturday. And so... Let's say, for example, Pesach started, I'm just making this up, on Thursday. So you wouldn't start counting Yomer, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, only on Sunday. So the fourth day of Pesach, you know, you start counting Yomer. If Pesach fell on a Wednesday, it'd be the fifth day of Pesach, and so forth. Yeah. Right, let me, let me, uh, fix this for a second. Yeah, okay, let me resume. Um, what I was saying was that when you look at his, uh, Business with the Omer, Sphere's Omer, not the Sphere's, but the Carmen Omer, Machras Shabbos, basically. So his point, I remember this, his point was um, like this. If you go like the Tzedukim, let's say, for example, so how many days is it between Machras um, Shabbos and, uh, and uh, Shavuos? You get it? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, uh, let's put it this way. Suppose. Let's say, for argument's sake, suppose um, uh, the first Seder was uh, uh, Saturday night. Uh, okay, so Machras Shabbos be right down in there. Uh, so you, so until you get to Shavuos, I mean, fifty days later will be a different date. On the other hand, if uh, if the the first Seder was Friday night, then it'd be a day earlier, and so you could have. 
50 days, 52 days, 53 days. I mean, there's a limit, of course, but, you know, within various numbers could be the number of days between um, Pesach and Shavuos. Machos HaShabbos and Shavuos, depending on, on the vagaries of the calendar. Uh, and then there's no intrinsic fixed number between A and B, between Pesach on the one hand and Shavuos on the other. But the Torah wanted, this is what Hoffman says, but the Torah understands, now it was in from thought, understands that Shavuos is the end of Pesach. Shavuos is the Aceris, it's the end of Pesach. It's just like there's one big Cholmon in between. And to demonstrate that point, there's a fixed number that never deviates. So it's just like saying like this, there's the first day of Pesach, and I know exactly how many days of Cholmon are going to be, and I know exactly when the last day of Pesach is going to be every year without exception. So the last day of Pesach has a certain fixed connection with the first day of Pesach. Or if you wish, Shemini Atzeros with the first day of Sukkot, things like that. So similarly, Shavuos of Pesach. The point, of course, obviously being that Zman Matan Torah is the reason for the Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. God didn't just let the Jews get out and heck with it, you know, then now you're on your own, or you can go and party or something like that. But he took them out of Egypt with a goal. As we say in the Chumash at the burning bush, this was part of the goal in the first place. In which case, that invests the exodus from Egypt with a with a supernal, with a with an exceptional significance because the whole point he sees in time was to get the Torah. And by the way, that's a profound lesson in political science because countries which attain their freedom from foreigners, they stop being slaves, but they don't have their own structure to organize their society, collapse into uh, chaos and disintegration. In America, we know that after the American Revolution was over in 1783, was the treaty ended the war, Revolutionary War, he had a couple of years what was called the, the Articles of Confederation, remember? In which everything was submished. And the different states then worked together with each other, and the whole country was mamish falling apart. So they won the war against the British, but the whole country is falling apart for lack of a, of a Torah, if I can use that term. Which is exactly the reason they came together in 1787 made the Constitution. Once they had that, then they got it right, then the country could proceed. This is true in many countries. And to be perfectly honest, one of the big stories of the 20th century and 21st century is all these countries in Medinas and the third world gained their independence from colonial masters, but they couldn't organize their own lives. They couldn't get together their own Torah, so to speak. They couldn't put together a working constitution the way we have in America, and therefore the country disintegrated into dictatorship, chaos, uh, failed states and all that kind of business. So that's the point Hoffman is making uh, uh, w- w- as far as the integrity of our tradition. Now, I don't know what the Karaites and the others say. I mean, I'm not a Karaite, and therefore I don't know what they do. In, I, I, I'm not being funny now. Do they even have a holiday issue nowadays? The reason I say it is we, with the Torah Shavuot Pass, so we say it's Mon Matan Torah Seno, we make a big deal out of that, as you know very well, don't say anything in the Chumash about Shavuot being Mon Matan Torah Seno. It's all right on that. Right, this day in Sivan, that day in Sivan, and you know it's a whole guns of business. So as far as the Chumash is concerned, all you have on Shavuos is the what do you call it, the the sacrifice of the Shtei Alechem. So uh, I said before, if you Zedukim, especially the Karaim and all the, I mean, there ain't no base of Migdash nowadays, and there's no such thing by them as staying up all night 
to learn because they don't believe in all this uh, Talmudic stuff about Zmama and Torasena and the Klaiser was up and all the rest of it. Kabbalah Khamen didn't believe in the Kabbalah stuff. And so I don't even know where they're holding it as far as that's concerned. But Hoffman knew what we hold. And uh, as I said before, he brings many proofs from Josephus, from all these other uh, Greek and, and Latin sources, because he knew it all. You see? Uh, so my point, though, is anybody who undertakes to use um, Hoffman as a peer on the Chumash better be ready for unusual stuff. And being that we have in a very frummy world today, better be ready for a Barbanel-type business because he's got going in there all over the place. The whole nature of his uh, of his enterprise was to examine every pussy in light, light of what we say and relate to what the Goyim say, including all the big Bible presses. He's got Wellhausen in his book, and he's got Kunin, and he's got Ewald, and he's got Strauss, got all these other guys that the I'll tell you, I know right now, the average from Jew today here in Israel gets Hoffman's Pirishon Vayikra, two volumes from the Moser of Cook. It's an Ivrit translation, it's a good translation. And he said, What's Kunin? You know what I mean, right? You know, what is Graf? Uh, what is Wellhouse? I don't even know what those words mean. Because they don't understand the enterprise that Hoffman was engaged in. You see? Uh, now, I'll repeat. He ain't the only one. Uh, you find in the Barbanel and many other places, even Israel and so forth, they would quote Goyim. A couple months ago, I was at a wedding here in Baltimore. A girl, a lady came over to me, real from, and she says, you have to talk my father out of using the Hertz Chumash. I said, what do you have against the Hertz Chumash? She said, they have non-Jews in there. I said, well, he ain't the only one that have non-Jews in there. You know, the Barbanel does. I think the Akeda does. The other's in there. Well, you know, it didn't comport with what she thought is the right way. I, I mean, I know the world we're living in. I'm simply saying that Hoffman, his whole Messias, was to incorporate what you find in the outside world, either to slug it up, or if they see a good word, he doesn't mind mentioning it. Uh, it's silly to say, whether or not they should be part of the Torah commentary, he lived in a time in which he felt that they should be in there. I would also mention that he... After he published the Vikra, he was working on uh, on Dvarim, which has its own issues in many ways, part of the Bible criticism. Because remember, I told you, Daytina, that Dvarim was written, um, oh, in time of Yoshiyahu and all kind of stuff like that. Not as late as Vikra, but whatever. And he goes to, uh, in, in, in his way, to sort of upslug all that kind of stuff. As far as I know, the best summary of Hoffman's approach to Dvarim, which is complicated, and he died in the middle of it. He didn't finish uh, Hazino and Zosabrocha, but he did cover most of it. Uh, is a, Again, I would say Waxman, in my opinion. Waxman has the best uptouch of it uh, it's over, over several pages. It's very technical, and you know and I know. As soon as you get to Dvarim, what exactly do we do with this? Is this Moshe Rabbeinu speaking? Is it Hashem speaking? Is Shechina Medabimbi Tochrona Shomosha? Now, the Vilna Gon has the same problem. You know, the Vilna Gon also is dealing with these questions. So it's nothing new. And Hoffman has his way. Uh, again, he died in the middle. Uh, they published it after his death. And it's in Hebrew also. I don't have it. Years ago, the Hebrew College used to have it. And I used to, whenever I needed it, I would borrow from them. I don't see it ever reprinted. To be perfectly honest, I haven't seen the Moser of Cook reprint the Vayikra. I just have one from many years ago. It's a shame. Uh, 
I haven't seen it uh, lately. I can't say that Hoffman is out of fashion in the from world simply because uh, a year or two ago, uh, no, it's tw- 10 years ago, I see, uh, the Moser Ralph Cook published Hoffman, this is new, Hoffman stuff on Schmoes. Now, he had other things on by, um, parts of Bracious and parts of Schmoes. I remember he had the Migdal Bubble and all this sort of thing. And he's going to bring his way. Um, so if the Mozart Cook is recently publishing Shemos and maybe Bracious, I have the Shemos one. Although I can't say I, I can't say I've looked at Shemos much. That's maybe a shame on me. But they must have had the one on Dvorim because that's been out since the 1920s. If you ever see it, and if you're interested in these kind of issues, uh, Hoffman's Dvorim is like the way to go. It's around, it's around, I remember he has a whole very interesting introduction how to uptouch what is the book of Dvarim and so forth. Remember, he's a from guy, but he was a great scholar. He presents everything that we call a, a, a uh, I can't say objective, but as close to, uh, as close to objective as you can get from a from Jew. <laughs> Let me put it that way. As close to objective as you can get from a from Jew. Uh, now I want to tell you something. Um, again, uh, Shavu's around the corner. Um, Hoffman has in his Shmos, uh, uh, how should I put it? What do you learn on Shavu's night? Well, there's a lot of different traditions what to do. One that m- would make great sense, a lot of, maybe I'll do my show, I don't know. Uh, he's kind of long though, that's the trouble. It doesn't lend itself to a shear so well. Is, um, you know, the Aserah uh, Sadibrisen in Yisrael which is a very complicated parsha. The Gemara and Shabbos goes into all those uh, complications. All those complications. It's the opposite of easy to understand. Moshe goes up, Moshe goes down, uh, and all this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, How should I put it? The Gemara in... in, in, in uh, what is it? Paragraph Bikiv in Shabbos has to, you know, use a lot of unusual reading stratagems to understand... That even though it seems like Moshe is here, but the 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 the, the story skipped a day and then it had to come back. You know, those of you who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. And uh, plus, you have Rashi and the Ramban and all the others. And I'm just glancing through this, and I see he goes through this in a kind of a, a, a detailed way. Uh, now, again, he wrote this hundred years ago, so some of the scholarship is out of date, of course, but not to you and me, and uh, especially the Sarah uh, Dibbers himself. Which he analyzes in a very, very unusual, excuse me, very interesting way. Because remember, when he's looking at Sarasad Divers, he knows the whole Mechilta inside out. He knows every Chazal on it inside out. He knows Josephus and Philo and all the stuff inside out. And of course, he knows the Geisha stuff as well. So he brings a lot of perspectives to bear. This is not for everybody, but it is for a lot of people. It'll be very interesting over there. Now, look, I took me over an hour just to scratch the surface. That's all I did today. Of Hoffman as a as a uh, mefarish on the chumash. Um, I told you this. Rabbi Lakewood told me he uses the notes all the time for his classes because you can understand if somebody like Hoffman would be very misudder. You get it? Very misudder. And I would also say, He wrote in a very nice way. Now, he doesn't give up a, a thing. Like I said before, he'll say, Here's why I think I can prove it. That's his way. He won't say, ah, oh, well, Hussein's an idiot, or this other guy's a jerk. 
Uh, next time, if I have the opportunity, uh, I'll talk about him as a historian of the Mishnah. That's where you compare Hoffman with Halevi, and uh, you see the difference between, um, how should I put it, a gentleman and a brawler. <laughs> Even though they're both from, but they had different approaches. Uh, and there's just a, a, a great deal of interesting stuff about this person. So Hoffman today, part three, would be Hoffman as a commentator on the Chumash, but very different than your typical commentator on the Chumash. As far as I'm aware, nobody else in the last hundred and some years has picked up this business to try to slug up or disprove um, the Bible criticism. Not as far as I'm aware, especially current Bible criticism. I could be wrong. It's not my field, but I don't think I'm wrong. Uh, he's the last guy to do it. And uh, that tells you volumes about the firm world. Now, again, they ignore us and we ignore them. Is ignoring a policy? It actually is a policy. <laughs> you know? It actually is a policy. When people don't know these questions, it doesn't bother them. And if you wait long enough, the intellectual trends of the world move in the direction where the old stuff doesn't even matter anymore. But we're not there yet, not in the year 2022. Uh, don't think that the world of Hoffman is, is over. It's, it's not at all. And any, Which is why most people wouldn't send their kids today to a university in which they would take courses in ancient uh, biblical studies or anything like that. Uh, I actually teach in such a department in, in my university. Oh, that's that's not what I teach. Department of Near Eastern Studies, that's exactly what they go into. Uh, today would be like heavy-duty... Ooh, Fira. But um, I do know kids, uh, rarely, that have gone to this and became not religious as a result of this. So it's not so simple Some to say you can always ignore it. Uh, for Rove, you can for Rove you can ignore it. So uh, let me put it this way. They, they need another Hoffman today, but I don't know anybody. Because I'll repeat again, you can't do this successfully unless you, the way he did it, unless you knew the whole Shas. And when I say Shas, I mean Bavli, Yushalmi, Mechilta, Sefer, Sefer, Midrashen, you, you know, you name it. You got to know, and when I say know it, I mean know it like, like almost memorize it, you see. So um, I don't know anybody like that who's interested in this and interested in that. Maybe the future will produce someone like that. Anyway, I went w way over time and always scratching the surface of one of this. If I have the opportunity, I can find another sponsor, then we'll try to do Hoffman as a, uh, as a Mr. Mishnah, Mr. Mishnayis. Uh, which is a whole separate parsha and brings about in a different light. Once again, I want to thank Richard Newman. I want to say it's important that today should be this uh, talk today should be on Elias Neshama for his uh, father's memory. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.